Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Mariella Meets. I'm Mariella Frostrup, and each week I'll be bringing you a selection of the best interviews from our favorite guests. Movers and shakers from the worlds of art and entertainment, politics, business, music, and wider society. To discuss everything from their latest endeavors to career highlights and early beginnings. Intimate, in-depth talk with pioneering talents and fascinating folk. Discussing the stuff that matters to them and how they scaled the slippery slopes of success. Christina Lamb is no stranger to conflict and chaos. She's been trapped in trenches by Russian tanks with the Mujahideen ambushed by the Taliban in Helmand province and present on the bus where the 2007 Karsas suicide bomb attack took place on former Pakistani Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto. During 35 years, she's worked as a foreign correspondent. Um, sorry about the background noises. I'm sure we'll eliminate them in a moment and my coughing. Um, her work telling those vital stories of vulnerable people caught in the crossfire has not gone unnoticed. She's won over 16 major awards, been appointed an OBE for her services to journalism and written 10 books, including the best-selling The Africa House and I Am Malala, co-written with Malala Yousafzai. Her most recent book is centred on that unprecedented year in our global history, the coronavirus pandemic in 2020, which saw populations across the world go into lockdown. The chief foreign correspondent for the Sunday Times found herself moving into the Prince Rupert Hotel in Shrewsbury, a four-star hotel which chose to house 33 rough sleepers, transforming the lives of both its temporary guests and the hotel's staff. She tells all in her book, The Prince Rupert Hotel for the Homeless, and I'm happy to say joins me now in the studio, in the flesh, as it were, in a very nice summer dress. Um, welcome, Christina. Thank you, Mariella. Lovely Thank to you. have you back. Lovely to be here. Um, it's a really heartwarming story of compassion. It also, in a way, covers the same theme as much of your previous work, which is giving voice to the voiceless, people reduced to statistics, perhaps. So do you, did, you, did you feel that you were making a great leap by reporting on this story, or did it feel very familiar territory? Well, it's the first time I've written about my own country. So that was very different. Um, as you said, it was because of COVID, I couldn't travel. And suddenly I found myself becoming a, a home news reporter. Um, so one of the things I reported on was this everyone in campaign that the government uh, launched, which was basically to get all rough sleepers off the street by the weekend um, because it was felt that they would be much more vulnerable to COVID, but also that they might spread it. So it shows actually that if you have the will and the money, you can solve homelessness because they, they got everybody off the streets very quickly. 
um, of course, <laughs> things yes. haven't continued. We'll, we'll go on <laughs> to talk about how that how that worked out in the end because it's not necessarily necessarily a story with a, no. a fully happy <laughs> ending, is it? But um, what was it about the, 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 this particular situation that, that appealed to you? I mean, it's, it's really incongruous in a way. Um, tell us a little bit about the, the Prince Rupert Hotel, which I think was owned by a man who used to manage Sandy Lane Hotel in Barbados, Barbados you know, best known for sort of guests like, like Michael Winner and, uh, and so on. So it, it really does seem an unlikely uh, story for him to then be taking in homeless people as the pandemic closes in. Absolutely. So what happened was most of the rough sleepers were put in budget hotels and cheap bed and breakfast hotels. So I had reported on that. And then I heard about this hotel in Shrewsbury, the Prince Rupert Hotel, um, and actually spoke to the manager who told me, in fact, they ended up having more than 100 homeless people in the hotel. So I Googled the hotel, and to my surprise, it was a four-star luxury hotel with kind of knights in armour and four-poster beds and chandeliers and decanter of sherry at the reception. Not it just was Tudor, really different. But, but, but I think bits of it dated back to the 11th century. Exactly. So, so I was really intrigued. So I went to go and visit them and met... Basically, Mike Matthews, who's the owner, who had been manager of Sandy Lane, as you mentioned, and also his two, what he calls his right-hand women, Jackie Law, who is the accountant, and Charlie Green, who is the manager, all moved into the hotel during COVID, during lockdown, to look after these homeless people. And the reason that the hotel took them in at the beginning was... Mike kind of panicked when he saw that hotels were going to be closed down. And he said, for a hotel like that, a really historic old hotel, you can't just sort of lock it up and go away because all the pipes would seize up and things would go mouldy and um, snails and things would come in. And so he was desperate to find a way to keep the hotel open. So he was sort of offering it to all sorts of people. Nobody wanted it. And then... The council um, of Shrewsbury had been told that they'd got to get all the rough sleepers off the street. So the guy in charge listed every hotel and B&B, including the Prince Rupert. And his colleagues laughed at him and said, there's no point going to the Prince Rupert as a four-star hotel. Um, and when he went to see them, not only did they say, yes, we'll take some, but then they said, well, how many have you got? And he said, from 30 to 40. So they said, well, we'll take them all. <laughs> so he was astonished. And what's interesting about it is, I guess in a way, it didn't really, it wasn't initially an act of philanthropy. It was, it was an no, act it in was order to exactly, save the business, it as it were, save it the building. And actually, to be honest, you know, they knew nothing about homeless people and... Mike is the first to admit that he would walk past people in doorways and think, why are they there? Why don't they get a job? Um, so he wasn't really necessarily sympathetic. But um, once all these people started moving in, and of course, you know, many at the beginning arrived really smelly because they'd been living on the streets, they couldn't wash, and they weren't used to being in those kind of surroundings. So they they were also a bit nervous um, some of them you know, didn't come out of their room for days because suddenly they had this nice room and a TV. That's green. <laughs> and so, you know, it was quite difficult at the beginning, but they became this sort of dysfunctional family. 
before we talk about the the homeless people who who came in, uh, let's talk because Mike obviously had an, a vested interest. He owned the building, you know, and and he wanted to keep it up and running and functioning. Um, but what about Jackie and Charlie, his right hand women? Because actually, in the book, it's it's them I was struck by more than anything. You know, they sacrifice so much to to move into the hotel and take on what must have been, you know, quite a scary. Um, situation in some ways. You don't focus in on, on the fear that much, but uh, but I wouldn't no, have imagined they were in that amazing. situation. I mean, Jackie in particular, you know, she was the accountant and suddenly she's dealing with heroin overdoses and um, because, you know, a lot of the people that moved in were very complicated. Lots of them had suffered um, abuse. Many of them were alcoholics or drug addicts or had mental health issues. Um, and so, you know, hotels are used to dealing with difficult guests often, but this was really challenging. Oh, well, that was the other thing, because they were determined to treat them as guests, weren't they, as well? It wasn't a, a kind of, look, there's a roof over your head now, off you go. They were being given hotel service. No, absolutely. That's what's really different to most of the other hotels that took people in. In this case, you know, Charlie was cooking these amazing roast dinners. She made afternoon teas with sort of scones and jam and cream and um, Prosecco and um, made everyone birthday cakes. And so she insisted that we will treat them like regular guests, but with hugs. And she, most incredibly warm person who'd gone through a lot of personal crisis, actually, and uh, which she felt that looking after the homeless guests really helped her. And, you know, you're painting a, a wonderful kumbayaish picture no, of them not. all uh, together in this house, just rubbing, rubbing together and getting on with it. Uh, but was it always like that? And and was there ever a moment when the staff thought this is too much? We're we're out of our depth. I think there were many moments like that, particularly Mike, who would sort of go to bed thinking, "My God, what's going to happen to my hotel?" That you know, these people were trashing the rooms. Lots of spoons disappeared because people were using the spoons to to heat their heroin. They had. Um, endless floods because people were running baths to create lots of steam because that meant that the drugs worked quicker. Um, and so often water would start pouring through the roof in this very ancient hotel. Um, so, yeah, many times he was like, what have I done? And uh, no, it was not easy. And, that you know, there was a lot of tragedy. I mean, people died um, they had lots of issues with um, people overdosing. But there were also funny moments. I mean, they had people complaining about the, the gravy not being thick enough. You know, Mike would say to Charlie, you know, this is a, the um, biggest armed robber in Shropshire is complaining about your gravy. Um, they had people posting reviews on TripAdvisor no. about the hotel. So, um, yeah. But in the end, you know, they became this sort of family and it helped them understand a lot about homelessness and look at homeless people very differently and that was a sort of attraction for me to do the book too which was I usually embed with armies right? and suddenly I was embedding in this hotel uh, with all these homeless people 
um, and living with them 24 hours a day. So they couldn't really escape me. <laughs> um, and how long did you bubble with them? Because you, you yeah. were basically in a COVID bubble with, with, so, with the residents. Um, I went three times. So I was there for the first time, I think, for three weeks, then for two weeks and then for a week in different lockdowns um, and got to know... Some of the guests very well. Some of them were very wary because they, you know, used to, you know, frankly, being sort of spat at and treated badly and felt that the media didn't portray them in a fair way. Um, others, you know, really wanted to talk and wanted, liked the fact that there was somebody who wanted to hear their story. And, you know, they all had fascinating stories, all different um, and some of them, you know, literally one bad thing had happened, like, you know, suddenly lost a job or they'd been kicked out by their girlfriend and uh, got into a spiral. And all of a sudden they were living on the streets, something that they'd never imagined. Others had been on the streets for decades. I know. You, you write about one man, I think, who'd been on the streets for 35 mm. years, which is sort of hard to imagine. It was also one of my favourites was a guy called Simon who um, is looks like Father Christmas, has his twinkling eyes and big white beard, and he really likes cathedrals. So he chooses to live. He doesn't. He says I, my nightmare would be to live behind four walls. Although I noticed when in the TV room he spent most of his time watching property programs, which no. I thought was very funny. <laughs> but he says, you know, people call us rough sleepers, but. I don't sleep much and I'm not rough. <laughs> um, so he you know, would basically move around the country, find, uh, be interested in going to a different cathedral. He'd just come from Wells Cathedral where he said he'd like to go to Ely because he'd heard that was a good cathedral and he'd go and sleep in the churchyard. Um, Mike was very much hoping that he'd be able to in some way participate, I suppose, as you would in some form of rehabilitation for people and that that you know that everyone would emerge out of it better and 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 they would be able to change lives was that your experience yeah. of of what happened or his experience well, it, it's not a fairy story um it basically it's very challenging and you know at the beginning to be let's be honest as you said he wanted to keep his hotel going and thought it would just be for a few weeks like all of us thought at the beginning that lockdown would just be a few weeks that it would be over um, in fact, they had the homeless guests for more than a year. And uh, they then, once they realised it was a more long-term thing, got really into, well, maybe we can change the lives of these people if we give them love and give them a roof and give them good food um, and we can turn their lives around. But they discovered that it's much more complicated than that. And that, in a way, is the sad thing that this feels a bit like a lost opportunity because they did everything they could, but they didn't really have the support from the services to help the people deal with addictions and mental health issues. And um, and that was frustrating for them. As a country, we're, we're facing a homelessness crisis. I think one in every 206 people currently um, living without a home. Did it? Did it? I'm sure it did. How did it make you reflect on, on, on the UK's attitudes and, more importantly, maybe policies around homelessness? It made me angry. You know, we're fifth, sixth most affluent country on earth. Why should we be having all these people living on the streets? And yes, there were a few that whatever you did probably would always be on the streets because they just were really 
complicated. Uh, one of them introduced me to himself as HLH, hard to love homeless. Um, But others, you know, just really needed some support and a chance. And it's really difficult to get out of homelessness. I mean, I had no idea how difficult the system was to register to find housing and how, you know, particularly if you're a, a single white male, you're, you know, you're right at the bottom of the the chain. Um, and it's a real challenge. It, you know, it's somebody described it to me as like sort of, you know, weekly misery contest. Who can be the most miserable to qualify to get the, the housing? Um, so and also just to see that, you know, I like I'm afraid, like so many people often just used to walk past people who are standing in doorways or sleeping in doorways, you know, we're always in a hurry. You can't be bothered to try and find coins or to sit and talk to people. And and so actually spending that time in the hotel and getting to know all these people really changed my view. And I can tell you earlier this year, my father died. And the first people to reach out to me when I put something on Facebook were some of the homeless people that I got to know there. And they were immediately saying to me, you know, call any time, any any help that you need. And I just thought that's amazing because one of the things I realized talking to them was that one of the biggest issues that most of them had was, you know, we all go through bad things at different times, but most of them didn't have that sort of support network of family and friends that most people have. So they'd had nobody to help them in difficult times. Welcome back. My guest is acclaimed author and war correspondent Christina Lamb. We're discussing her new book, The Prince Rupert Hotel for the Homeless. Or we have been, because now, Christina, which you probably won't be at all comfortable with, we're going to go on to talk a little bit about you. Um, You clearly have an insatiable curiosity. I think this book is just the latest example of you being led down a sort of rabbit hole uh, by a story because you just want to find out more. Um, And I understand that you were quite a free spirit as a child. So is that when it started? Uh, yeah, I guess so. I was um, always in trouble, actually, at school. But I always wanted to to travel and see the world. And uh, I grew up in a sort of suburb of London, which was not a very interesting place, more than the most <laughs> suddenly stop on the, the northern line. And then we moved to a place called Cushorton Beaches. Um, and I always felt that there were much more interesting places to be than either of those places. So. Why were you always in trouble at school? Um, I think it was just very rebellious and was a bit bored and wanted to kind of go out and do other things. And yeah, so I just felt that there was more interesting things beyond the school <laughs> walls. But then you went on to, to Oxford, to Oxford University to study chemistry. Um, why did you choose science? <laughs> oh my goodness. It seems quite an incongruous <laughs> choice for what you carried on to do later in your career. So I was at uh, one of the last grammar schools and uh, it was an all-girls school. And if you were bright, they really pushed you into doing science because they felt that more women should go into science, which is right, I think. But actually, my best subjects were not science, nor were they my favourite subjects. But not Christina Lamb. (laughs) So I ended up doing um, chemistry, physics and maths A-level 
And then when I applied to university, realised actually I didn't really like any of those subjects. <laughs> Chemistry was the the least um, sort of objectionable to me. Um, and you can't, you know, apply to do English with chemistry, physics and maths. So I um, was lucky because I got into Oxford and was able to switch subjects. So I switched to PPE, which was quite a dramatic change and also is a subject which I think many people now blame for the <laughs> ills in our politics because many of our former politicians and prime ministers, although not Boris, did PPE. So, can you see what they might have learnt in that during during that period <laughs> that would set them on the wrong path? I think you learn in BBE to be able to uh, bullshit basically about anything and write um, and talk about all sorts of different things without actually having studied very much. So, um, but uh, yeah, I, I loved being there, and it's where I always wanted to write, and I got involved in the university newspaper and ended up ed editing it so that's how I really got into journalism I can't believe I have to apologize for your language sorry. normally <laughs> me who's in trouble but sorry for that um brief uh, you know what well, I don't even know it's not even a swear word but I know some people might be offended um yeah you said that um you, you were interested in journalism you got into student journalism and everything you then worked at the FT and I think that's when you f had first a, a thirst for foreign reporting or, or at least were allowed to go and do some foreign reporting and you've said that your secret weapon in a way was your innocence and naivete uh, at the time because it gave you fresh eyes perhaps but was that a welcome viewpoint or was it considered you know a sort of an anomaly well I mean to be honest I got into foreign corresponding by accident really because um, I went to the FT to intern and one day I was sent to a lunch of South Asian politicians which the foreign editor was supposed to go to and last minute couldn't go and he said to me, you're always going on about India because I had this dream of being Delhi correspondent. So he said, why don't you go? And I sat next to somebody at that lunch who was the Secretary General of the Pakistan People's Party, which was the party of Benazir Bhutto, who was then living here in exile. And he asked me if I'd like to interview her. So, of course, I said yes. And I went to do this interview. And the day that I did it, her apartment was absolutely full of bouquets of flowers because she'd just got engaged to Azif Ali Zadari. So it was very timely. And then uh, she went back to Pakistan. I got a job at Central TV as a trainee news reporter. Uh, one day I came home from work and there was this most beautiful gold inscribed invitation on my doorstep. And it was to her wedding in Pakistan, which I'd never been to. And was, of course, the most amazing introduction to Pakistan because South Asian inter uh, weddings tend to go on for long and be very colourful. But her being this um, great daughter of a, a leading politician was um, absolutely... Epic, I guess. Yes, it was. <laughs> and, and also very political because after all the ceremonial events, there would be these discussions with her political colleagues about how to try and topple the military dictator, General Zia. So I was just fascinated. I mean, the most dangerous thing I'd ever done at that point was finding my way home late at night from 
a club in London after the trains had stopped. So meeting all these people who had been tear gassed, tortured, arrested, jailed for trying to bring democracy to their country, I thought was just fascinating. So I gave him my notice at Central TV and went to live in Pakistan. And that was the beginning was it. of this trajectory <laughs> across the world. Um, I can't let you go. I can't believe we've run out of time because there's so many things I still want to ask you. But um, I can't let you go without talking about Afghanistan because you were coming on the programme. I just thought this morning about all the stories that disappear off the front pages, but they continue you know, in terms of the real lives of of the people involved in them. And I wondered what your impression is of what's happening in Afghanistan at the moment, because it's not in the headlines, but I dare say it's not in um, a very good state. It's heartbreaking. I mean, to have um, seen what's happened there, and in particular to the girls. I mean, girls, as you know, can't go to high school in Afghanistan. It's the only place on the planet where that's true, and women... Um, cannot work except if they're in um, hospitals or teachers. And so all of these people who had dreams like, you know, to do things like the rest of us do, they shouldn't have been dreams, they should have been reality, um, overnight suddenly found that they can't do anything, that they're stuck at home. um, And it is just so soul-destroying. I mean, lots of my female friends there say to me it would have been better if the West had never come because they created these dreams and have shattered everything. But also the humanitarian crisis and people, you will have seen the reports of literally having to sell their children, to sell their kidneys, just to try and be able to feed the rest of their family. It's really an awful situation um, and it's you know, I'm afraid this is the problem. We don't seem to focus on more than one thing at a time. So Ukraine is sort of, you know, much as it's important that we cover that, is has sort of sucked away the interest from Afghanistan. I just came back from Syria. That's not being covered. But I am going to Afghanistan very soon. Uh, it will be a year since the Taliban took over. It's still a complete pariah state. It's not been recognized by any country on earth. Um, and it's a really um, terrible situation for people. Only 4% of Afghans are getting enough to eat, according to the UN. You mentioned words like soul-destroying, um, and um, you, you know, I just wonder, you know, you, these are not just statistics, as we said at the beginning. These are people that you've met and talked to, people that you know quite well, even people that you consider friends whose lives are you know, so directly impacted there. Um, my good friend Don McCullen uh, always talks, and I always accuse him of, of being a bit Eeyore-ish. You know, he's the famous war photographer. Christina will know that, but yeah. just in case anyone else doesn't. And he talks about the sense of hopelessness that his whole life's work, his bringing back of these images, his, his recording of what's happening all over the world has made no difference. I, I wonder how you deal w- with that sense, whether you feel the same sense of frustration and, and how you deal with the emotional baggage of, of leaving those people behind and coming back home to your son and your family life and your, you know, your world. Of course, that's the hardest thing in my job by a long way when you, you know, you pour your heart out writing something to try and make an impact that people will then do something about. 
and then nothing happens and the people and of course what's changed a lot in the 30 odd years I've been a correspondent is that now we stay in touch with everyone because everybody's on whatsapp or even in sort of remote afghan villages people have got smartphones these days and so you know you'll write something and then um people will message you back you know what difference did it make i was recently in northern iraq with in some of the yazidi camps they've now been almost eight years in those camps since isis came and um abducted so many of the women and forced them to be sex slaves and they still can't go home um most people have forgotten now but you know what keeps you going is that in all these awful places um, and situations, you find people doing the most amazing things that do make a difference. And um, and just some small things like this morning, actually, I woke up to a message from these two Afghan boys at the Yuzini boys, whose uh, mother was one of the first female um, Supreme Court judges in Afghanistan, and she was assassinated. Um, last year they shot her as she was going to work and there was people might remember she had a mother's day card in her bag and there was all these bullet holes went through it and so her two sons were orphaned and so I kept in touch with them and um, Helena Kennedy the um, leading human rights barrister here helped get them out of Afghanistan because when the Taliban took over they were really at risk because they'd spoken out a lot about how the Taliban had killed their mother. And so she helped get them out to Greece, but they'd been stuck there for ages and it was really difficult getting them um, to come here because this government isn't necessarily um, particularly helpful in bringing or allowing people to come here, as we know. Um, and finally this morning they messaged me saying that they got here two days ago, that they're loving it, that they're at school and they love the school. So, you know, okay, these are just two people, but um, I was so happy. So it's just small things. And I think maybe sometimes it's easy to get overwhelmed by all the horror that there is and think, oh, we can't do anything. But actually you can do small things and if you can just help one or two people, that's actually, you know, really worth doing. Absolutely. Thank you so much, uh, Christina Lamb. It's always a total pleasure to talk to you. And thank you for ending on, on that, you know, lightly positive note, or at least this is a wonderful, uh, happy ending, at least, which doesn't often happen, as you say. Thanks for listening to Mariella Meets with me, Mariella Frostrup. There'll be more from the podcast next week, so make sure to download the free Times Radio app to never miss an episode. And don't forget, you can catch the live edition of my programme every Monday to Thursday, 1 till 4, on Times Radio. Catch you next time.